0: Uh, good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, and I want to thank everybody for who made it for braving, braving the rain. I think it's started to slow down a little bit, but we still appreciate you doing that. Uh, I'm Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at the Cato Institute, uh, and I am honored to serve as a moderator for today's book forum. Uh, you could imagine, as my position overseeing the financial regulation studies area, I get to read a lot of books on the financial crisis. Uh, sometimes that's a pleasure. Sometimes it's a burden. Uh, If there's truly been a growth industry over the last several years, I think it's fair to say that that's been books and articles in the financial crisis and the global regulation. Uh, The topic of today's forum, Alchemists of Loss, to me stands out, however, in several ways from the crowd. Uh, I think it is probably the most comprehensive and one of the most accessible books I've read on the financial crisis. I wouldn't say this about many of the books I've read, but I would say if you had to suggest one book to somebody to say, if you want to understand how we got here and how we need to get out, This book, in my opinion, is certainly a contender to be on that list. Uh, And while both of its authors are, in my opinion, great friends of free markets and liberty, they do not hold back when it comes to the appropriate criticisms and mistakes of the private sector that contributed to this crisis. Uh, Nor do they spare the mistakes made by government or academia, who, in my opinion, played starring roles in this crisis and created a lot of the foundation for where we are today. Uh, but most important, this is truly a very accessible book. This is a book I feel like I could give my mother to read and she would walk away with an understanding of how we got here. Um, but uh, apart from that, I want to use one example that I, that I found sort of most uh, interesting and most descriptive. I've read a tremendous amount of things on risk management and value at risk, and I have finally, in my opinion, found something that you can give to a non-financial person to describe actually how VAR works and with the, f- the flaws with it. So to me, that alone is an example of a great accomplishment. Uh, so this is really something that if you want to understand how financial services works and how it doesn't work, and you want to understand that in layman's terms, this is really, truly a great place to start. Um, One of my frustrations in a lot of the books I've read about the financial crisis is they really do start out with a clear, compelling explanation, and then they end with a laundry list of policy recommendations that seem to be simply added on, that come out of floating from nowhere. Uh, And while Kevin and Martin do offer a list of policy recommendations, the thing that I think is most valuable with theirs is that you do see where these policy recommendations actually flow from the analysis in the book. They present a problem, they describe it, they analyze it, and they present a solution. Solution, uh, rather than a disconnect between the two, Uh, and I think that that makes the solutions all the more compelling and all the more important. Uh, Unfortunately, most of the solutions they recommend have not been implemented, and many of which are unfortunately are not even being discussed within the policy realm today. Uh, Hopefully, this book and this in our forum today will help change that a little bit. Uh, Now, we are fortunate to have both of the authors here today, uh, and uh, they're going to take some they're going to take turns trading off. Uh, To start, this is going to be Kevin Dowd. Kevin Dowd is recently retired from the University of Nottingham. He is currently a visiting professor at Cass Business School's Pensions Institute at the City University of London. Uh, I'm also very proud to say that Kevin has long been an adjunct scholar here at the Cato Institute, uh, as well as maintaining affiliations with the Institute for Economic Studies in London and the Independent Institute in California. Kevin is an incredible author. He's written a very large number of books. Uh, Some uh, just mention a few of them. The State and the Monetary System, Laissez-Faire Banking, uh, Competition and Finance. uh, And many of these, I think, are tremendous reads, and I certainly encourage you to look at his other work as well. Uh, His co-author, who will be following him in the presentation, Martin Hutchinson, writes a weekly column called The Bear's Lair, which focuses on economic and market trends. Martin has also was the business and economics editor at the United Press International here in DC from 2000 to 2004. Uh, Martin actually has some extensive experience in the financial services industry and in this he's been a, a merchant banker for over 25 years. I actually found one of the more enjoyable parts of the book were the occasional little anecdotes that clearly came from Martin and some of his experience in the financial services industry that really sort of brings home some of the points in uh, a little more grounding. He is also currently a, a columnist with Reuters Breaking Views. Uh, We were going to have a very distinguished discussion today, Anthony Sanders from George Mason. And I'm sorry to say that uh, Professor Sanders has fallen ill, so he will not be with us today. Uh, But he did say to me this morning when I talked to him that he thought this was a tremendous book and one of the best he has read on the topic. So he was very much enjoyed reading it. Uh, So with that, I once again thank you. And I'm going to turn the
1: panel over to Kevin. Thank you. Thank you, Mark, for those very generous uh, words and, and for the very warm welcome. And uh, I'd like to wish you all good afternoon and thank you all for coming. I'm sure you've got better things to do, but I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad you came, that is to say. And uh, I'd also like to thank Cato for the hospitality um, and for the friendship, Cato, for many, many years. And uh, it's a real, real pleasure to be here. Um, and finally, I'd also like to thank Martin, uh, because... Um, I mean, we wrote this book over a six-month period, and um, when I was coming over on the plane yesterday, I was appalled at how big it was. I'd just forgotten what was in it. <laughs> now I realised why it nearly killed both of us to do it. But, but when we were doing it, I mean, I I'd obviously have my free market leanings and so forth, and working on risk management, i become more and more uh, concerned, and I, I couldn't really put it all together it was really only working with Martin that I managed finally to think that I understood what was going on. And so for a six-month period or so, it felt like a little boy at Christmas time where I'd get up and go to the computer, switch it on to see what goodies and insights and jokes and so forth were coming through from Martin. And so it was an absolutely delightful experience. Now, the starting premise of the book is essentially that if we're to understand what's uh, been going on, understand recent events, we need to start with the power of ideas. And in this, I take my lead from Maynard Keynes, of course. He once famously said that the world was ruled by little else. And he went on to say in a very famous passage that practical men who believe themselves kind of beyond all this academic stuff are often the slaves of some defunct economist. And... uh, In this case, the the defunct economist, I think, is Keynes himself, be that as it may. But we're starting with the idea of, uh, uh, of, of entrenched ideas. And to understand what's been going on, I think you have to look at two different sets of vested ideas produced by two different sets of alchemists. Now, I don't think I'm being unfair when we describe them as alchemists, because what's the essence of alchemy? It's a a system of thought, which is more or less consistent, but it's based on preposterous assumptions. And away you go, off with the fairies, basically. Now, the first of these two systems of thought is Keynesianism itself, hence my jibe at Keynes as the defunct economist. Um, And to give you an example, I don't want to dwell much on Keynes, but I do need to make a couple of points. I mean, the essence of Keynes, I believe, is that... um, well, Keynes, if you look towards the end of the general theory, he explicitly puts himself <coughs> in the tradition of the monetary cranks of old, the guys that good people dismiss. Now, Keynes decided it was a clever idea uh, to re- re- resuscitate this stuff. And in particular, uh, you know, he sneered at Gladstone and you know, the idea that the government should look after a, uh, government finances like a household. And he-, he seized on the paradox of thrift, which was a notorious idea um, made famous by Bernard Mandeville in the *Fable of the Bees in 1714. At the time this was uh, produced, it caused a great deal of offence. And somebody once later said that it was a a cynical system of morality made attractive by ingenious paradoxes. Now, Keynes then took this paradox and entrenched it as the centrepiece of his macroeconomics. Okay. And... um, So this basically leads to the idea of demand management and tinkering with the economy. That usually means stimulus. In fact, it always means stimulus. And I'm I'm reminded of an old joke about Keynes once giving a lecture and some student fell asleep, so Keynes sort of was irritated, so he shouted at the student and woke him up and asked for an answer. And the student, of course, didn't hear what he said so the student said I'm sorry Mr. Keynes I didn't hear the question but the answer is that we need more stimulus (laughs) (laughs) and that's always the answer and it's failed again and again and again and again and the other point I'd like to make about Keynesianism is the sustained attack on saving I mean basically you get the idea that consumption is good spending is good saving is bad and it seems very clever, as particularly if you've gone through the, um, you know, you go through, I mean, I'm concerned at the moment that my daughter's going through an undergraduate degree and she's been taught this nonsense. Um, but what people don't uh, teach you is that saving is the key to capital accumulation and capital accumulation is key to long-term prosperity. That's just somehow not only gone away, but the Keynesians explicitly chip at it as if it was a bad thing, you see. So anyway, that, I don't want to say much more about Keynesianism. We we'll just take it as read that I'm not a great fan. Um, the second belief system that we um, uh, criticise is modern finance, both the practice and the theory of modern finance. And the bottom line here is I think that we've lost all perspective on finance. Um, and uh, I think to understand what's wrong with it, we need to look uh, at the past And so in the past, finance emphasized old-fashioned values like trust, integrity, saving, the need to build long-term relationships, the need to invest for the long term, Uh, modest remuneration for practitioners, a focus on the interests of clients. And we had tight corporate governance, a sense of harmonized interests, and you know, a sense that, that uh, you know, things were not perfect, but things worked fairly well. And you took the long-term perspective. Modern finance emphasizes all the opposite. It emphasizes a focus on marketing over and sales, form over substance, and we all know that. Um, it, uh, an obsession with the short term, you know, the next quarterly statement and so forth, and the next bonus, um, preference for speculation and trading over proper investment, long-term investment, stratospheric, I would say obscene, remuneration levels for practitioners uh, paid for by exploitation and essentially rent-seeking. And we have the erosion, and this is most important, the erosion of the old systems of corporate governance and out-of-control conflicts of interest. So this is what we're dealing with. It's vastly different. From what it uh, used to be, and in underpinning this is a lot of nonsense theory. Um, basically, uh, we've got the efficient markets, Modigliani-Miller, uh, the f- uh, capital asset pricing model, all this derivative stuff, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And in the 90s and onwards, we have the emergence of uh, another bunch of snake oil salesmen, financial risk managers, and this is another belief system that patently has failed. Okay. Now, um, in in terms of the book, so that's the outline. Of, you know, that, that's what we're trying to get at. Now, in terms of the book, um, I think the best thing is just for me to sort of go briefly through the chapter, that, not, not chapter by chapter. You'll be glad to know, but just briefly through it, and just to give and pull out a few examples of the of the points that we're trying to make. The first off, we begin with some historical chapters, and uh, so we look at pre-modern finance. And we're looking essentially at, let's say, the United States 100 years ago, when the preeminent financier of the time was John Pierpont Morgan. And we should look, go back and look at how he operated and the values he had. And very much, the word, my word is my bond, very much captures it. He was a tough man, but you know, there was a sense of integrity and, and a long term there. And then uh, so you also had the, the, the vast importance of name. That When you did a deal with somebody, basically people don't know you, uh, starting from scratch. So you, you have to build up a reputation. Every deal you make, you put your name, your good reputation on the line. You rip somebody off, you soon lose your client base. So name and reputation are extremely important. And underlying that is liability. And here I mean real liability, Unlimited liability, every deal that Morgan did, he operated through an unlimited liability partnership both in London and in New York. He was putting his house on the line. he makes a spectacular screw up he 's looking at you know the, the the poor house or whatever the equivalent was a hundred years ago. That leads to a great deal of caution, measured investment and, and it, you know no sp- you know, you, you don't have a speculative mindset with that. You're not gambling with other people's money. You would be gambling with your own, and, you know, we don't do that. So, in addition, um, of course, therefore, it leads to limited risk-taking. And when it comes to financial crises, the crises were generally resolved by the big players uh, acting on their own. I mean, I'm reminded that Morgan in 1907 was the key, uh, key player in the resolution of the 1907 crisis, and when he resolved that, you know, he famously brought bankers into his, uh, his drawing room in his house and they sorted out the crisis. And after the crisis, somebody said, well, perhaps we should get President Roosevelt's uh, uh, approval. And Morgan turned around and said, well, what's the president got to do with it? And... <laughs> Of course, people reminded him that the Sherman Act was in in force and they could be prosecuted for solving the crisis. So they they, they got uh, Roosevelt's approval. But it was a very different world. Um, Now, we then go on uh, to look at past crises. And again, uh, I think it's very important that we see the current crisis. Uh, We shouldn't just see everything through the lens of the 1930s. And the sort of Keynesian fiction that the Depression was due to stock market speculation, et cetera, et cetera, and all that. And, and so what we try to do is give an historical overview of crises for the last 300 years. We, we don't go through all of them. We can't even list them all. But we go re, re, in reverse, you know, from the familiar to the unfamiliar. So we go through just, just to list the ones that we do, if I can remember them. Uh, we have the Japanese crisis. We have the S&Ls in the 80s. In the 70s, we have the secondary banking crisis, which brought the British banking system to its knees. And going further back, we have the Depression. Going further back again, we have 1907 and J.P. Morgan. Further back, we have 1890 and the first bearings crisis. Bearings must be unique in having been the, the sort of centrepiece of two crises, but the last time it finally did go belly up. And then further back, we have Over and Gurney, which is a lovely Victorian tale. It really does belong in a novel, uh, which has very eerie um, resonance to Lehman's and Northern Rock and so forth. Further back, we go to the 1830s and 40s, to the America's first Great Depression, after the bank war between uh, President uh, Jackson and, and Biddle, Then we have the British in 1825, an almighty crisis in Britain. It was said that it brought Britain within 24 hours of a barter economy. And then further back, we have the two great ones, the South Sea Bubble and the Mississippi Crisis, 1720 and so forth. We were tempted to go further back because you've also got the Tulip Crisis, but then we decided, well... Uh, We're dealing with banks rather than florists, so we leave those out. (laughs) What lessons do we draw from them? Well, the crises are quite different, but you have various commonalities, including botched policy, typically, financial innovation, and various other things. But the overriding lesson is, number one, that the crises generally were handled best by governments that worked with rather than against market forces. And underlying that, the counter-lesson that these crises were always severe, but they were only ever utterly devastating when the government got involved in a big way. Look at the 1930s, for example. Now, going further, anyway, that's the the history of it done. The next part of the book uh, is a series of chapters on various aspects of finance. Um, We go through the capital asset pricing model, Modigliani, Miller, etc., etc., and their various underlying flaws. And as Mark very kindly pointed out, we did try to keep it um, intuitive. In fact, there is only one uh, equation in the book, and I preferred none, but uh, I go by Hawking's view that every equation you put in the book halves your readership. <laughs> we did put one in, <laughs> and it's buried in the back somewhere where hopefully you miss it. Chapter, um, But one of the... When we look at finance, both the theory and the practice, i just to give you one example pulled out of everything, uh, risk management, financial risk management. In essence, this is just a belief system and a very primitive belief system. And I'd like to sort of draw your attention to pharaonic Egypt, where they, you know we might laugh now, but the Egyptians imagined all these gods and so forth, and it was very important for the pharaoh to do his prayers every day, otherwise the country would descend into chaos. And we think we're smarter than that. Well, if you look at Egyptian history, it only descended into chaos every 500 years or so. It's not a bad record. Now look at the modern financial risk manager. He gets a VAR model. He or she gets a VAR model. And what do we do? We get instant disasters. So, for example, even VAR was introduced in the early 90s, and it was very soon apparent that it didn't work. It was a very, very bad risk measure. Um, But the fact is it just didn't work. So to give you a couple of examples, in February 1995, Nick Leeson at Barings Brothers, his VAR report came into the London head office, and it gave him a VAR of zero. So Nick Leeson had a riskless position. Two days later, the bank senior management learned that they were utterly ruined, that Nick's uh, riskless positions had bust the bank. Then we see LTCM a couple of years later, in August... 97 LTCM had var numbers that said that it was never going to fail and this was just about as it was going into its death spiral and we've seen we've seen the same thing again and again and again since then and we've not learned anything Um, and just to give you a nice little quote there was um, I can find it oh shoot um a recent uh, risk manager observed that risk management discipline rarely made it to the chief executive's office, or the boardroom, or day-to-day decision uh, making. We had the appearance of risk management without the reality of risk management. So when we really needed it, it wasn't there. So we were we, we were completely exposed. Now, I don't want to. I'm, I'm running out of time here. So let me just very briefly uh, switch away from that. Um, um, I think part, part of the problem when we look at the evolution of finance and financial practice is that we've gone from, in J.P. Morgan's uh, years, a system of shareholder capital where the management was controlled by powerful shareholders, often with family fortunes and so forth, passed down and so on. And they had the managers where they needed them. And by about the early 1930s, I mean, the system worked till about then, when you you may recall Burley and Means famously talked about the separation of ownership and control. And in the process, in the years since then, we've seen the erosion of the big family fortunes through oppressive taxation and so forth, and the replacement of the individual shareholder by the institutional shareholder. And the flip side of that has been that the managers have have essentially uh, been freed from their shackles, so we see the rise of managerial shareholding, uh, uh, sh- uh, managerial capitalism, so stratospheric remuneration levels and so forth. And, and we know all about that. Um, I mean, just to give you my favorite example of this, Dennis Kozlowski from Tycho, some of you might remember. You know, $15,000 shower curtains and, you know, shenanigans like this. A shareholder party... Uh, uh, his wife's uh, birthday party, disguised as a shareholder meeting, involved, among other things, it was in the Italian island of Sardinia, and it involved a party in which um, the, the, the centerpiece was a, a, a replica, a nice replica of Michelangelo's statue of David, which tastefully exuded as a, as a fountain uh, where you could get vodka from a certain part of David's anatomy. So this was kind of Roman style, uh, you know, decadence, really. Um, So we need to reverse this, obviously. And then in in more modern times, uh, what we see by more modern times, I'm talking about the financial crisis, uh, maybe a little bit earlier, we're seeing uh, the the deterioration of managerial capitalism into crony capitalism. And here, the the, the social contract, in essence, is heads I win, tails you lose. So the the risk-taking uh, that the benefits of risk taking become privatized, so we have out of control moral hazard, but the costs of risk taking are shared by, by, shared by us all. And uh, a, a summary of this was John Goodfreund, the former chairman of uh, Solomon Brothers, who famously said, It's laissez faire until you get into deep shit. <laughs> then you get. And you know, that kind of capitalism we all like, so long as it's, you know, it's other people bailing us out. So where, where do we go from that? Well, I'm about out of time here. Um, we, 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 we clearly need institutional as well as political reform. And among other things, the, um, in the institutional reform, we, we need to go back to the idea that banks should stay around. You know, you don't want a company like Long Term Capital Management, notice Long Term, that never saw its fifth birthday and, and, and so forth. So, so we would suggest the principle of a 1,000-year bank. You know, the banks should, should, should operate as if they're going to be around you know, and exceed our grandchildren's lifetime and so forth. Uh, we also need effective corporate governance, and this must require extended liability. My, my own preference, and I think Martin would agree, is uh, to roll back the limited liability statutes, go right back to the 19th century... But we certainly need extensive, extended liability. Um, this will drive out a lot of the rubbish from the system, the uh, dangerous products like credit default swaps and so forth. Would we'll just be driven out. Uh, in addition, um, we want to see banks become zombified. You know, banking should be a boring business, mortgages and all this sort of stuff. It's not. It doesn't require high IQ and all that. It just it just requires reliability and integrity. So uh, if we, we, we need to find some ways of, of, of forcing the big behemoths into zombie commercial banks. Um, and so, for example, take Goldman Sachs. Um, you know, we'd see in this context the, the emergence of, of boutique investment banking. It's already happening. But take Goldman Sachs. If we can push this zombification agenda, then Goldman Sachs would be too expensive to compete with the zombies, the the, the you know the heartland banks and so forth it would be too conflicted and too mixed up to compete with the the boutique investment bank so what will goldman sachs do it then faces a choice it can zombify itself or it's, um it can um, it can just become a hedge fund they'll take one risk too many one day and blow up and i'm afraid i'm out of time there which is probably just as well so i apologize for that and i'll uh, turn over to martin Thank you. you.
2: Kevin, having promised you were going to avoid the mathematics lesson, I'm afraid that as a math major I have a, a duty here. Um, it will be part of what I'm going to talk about, which is basically how Wall Street risks should be regulated. We all recognise that um, in an ideal world you wouldn't have regulators, you'd have a completely free market, you'd have a gold standard, etc., etc., etc. But we don't live in such a world and we're further from it than we used to be. And so basically I want to go through where the risks went wrong and what we could do to regulate them. I'm going to talk about why Wall Street isn't a free market, which is mostly obvious. I'm going to talk about the failures of modern financial theory, very briefly, and of value at risk, the Wall Street risk management system, recognising they don't all use pure versions of that. I'm going to talk about Wall Street's risky incentives, why they want to get exciting. Um, I'm going to classify risk briefly. I'm then going to talk about some tools we can use for managing risk more effectively than um, value at risk. And then, uh, finally, I'm going to talk about how we could all walk out of here and design regulations, um, preferably that uh, Congress would initially pass so we don't trust the regulators to do it, because Wall Street will get at the regulators, that would actually solve the problem and you know, at least mean that one bit of the financial system was done appropriately. Uh, Firstly, why Wall Street's not a free market. An ideal system is self-regulating. But the Fed, of course, creates excess liquidity. We don't have a gold standard. Gold standards are nearly self-regulating. The 19th century British one had a thing called the Bank Charter Act of 1844, which got invoked about every 25 years. Disraeli called that the equivalent of the miracle in Naples of the liquefaction of St. Januarius's blood, which is rather spectacular and pretty. Um, and uh, so that one wasn't quite self-regulating, but it was reasonably close, and indeed, as we point out in the book, the Scottish banking system managed to deal even without that. It had no central bank, as indeed the the Canadian banking system, perfectly adequately until 1932, which is when they set up the Bank of Canada. So it's possible not to have a central bank. It's possible not to have money. Um, I just wrote a piece last week saying... You know, the governments may not want the gold system but standard, but they may not in the end get the option because actually private sector actors could start invoicing in gold, paying in gold, transferring gold internationally, and just eliminate all the nonsense with currencies altogether. You can today make an international transaction in gold through the SWIFT system. Um, other problems on Wall Street, you've got the mark-to-market, which um, basically means that Uh, profits get recognized before you've actually sold the security. You've got the bonus culture, which encourages short-termism. You've got limited liability. You've got uh, the ability of banks to pass off the risks to their shareholders because you've got these huge behemoths with a a lot of grannies investing in them. And basically, bankers are rather good at passing the risks off to the grannies and taking the profits themselves. And, of course, you've got the possibility of government bailout. And you've got... uh, community of traders and uh, and quantifying types, whatever you call them, quants, uh, creating risks that nobody understands, that are more or less unknowable. In fact, it's fairly clear that the quants didn't understand a lot of these risks themselves, because they were creating beautiful equations that had no reality underneath them. So turning next to why the equations had no reality, that, of course, is modern financial theory, which won seven Nobel Prizes. Uh, You've got it has a number of underlying assumptions that were wrong. Um, markets are not Gaussian, as modern financial theory assumes. Uh, the David Vineyard, the CFO of Goldman Sachs, announced in 2007 that he was seeing 25 standard deviation days one after another. Well, 25 standard deviation days shouldn't happen in, once in the life of a billion universes if markets are Gaussian, so that proves clearly that they're not Uh, Even five standard deviation days should happen only once in 6,000 years or so. Um, The random walk theory of Wall Street. You don't have a random walk on Wall Street because that implies equal size paces. What you've got is a random walk through a sort of Star Trek warp drive. So you suddenly get gigantic paces. There's a um, share I bought about three months ago. Um, a Chinese drugstore chain, which, you know, one day was trading at $3.05 and had done for the previous three months, and then suddenly, without any official public news, traded at $4.27 the next day. Well, of course, needless to say, I was absolutely overjoyed. I mean, 40% without doing any work and without even the company having to publish a quarterly earnings figure. But, you know, a 40% jump, that's not a random walk; That's a random warp. It's, it's Star Trek. Um, You've got underlying factors that in any case aren't random at all. They're unknown. Um, It's not random what the U.S. economy is going to do next year. It's unknown. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, And to pretend that it's random, you're making mathematical assumptions that are wrong, so that the underlying maths goes hugely skewed. Um, The... um, Underlying laws are, in any case, not stable. They change. You've got, it's a different market when you've got a nice, smooth trading days like we've had in the last few months. That's one thing. When you've got 2008 with people teetering on the edge and everybody worried, it's a very different market. It's like fluid dynamics, streamlined flow versus turbulent flow. Um, the parameters by which you assess the market, volatility most notably, they jump about. They can't be asses- um, Assessed. If you pretend in your model that volatility is the volatility over the last month, that can immediately become wrong. Volatility can change. And, of course, because you're modeling b- b- the volatility over the last month, it takes you a month for your model to adapt to the new market. And then, finally, the management incentive structures are wrong, and they cause gaming. They cause people to play games whereby they'll get good bonuses and then the bank goes bust the following year. Uh, value at risk. Uh, which is the Wall Street risk management system, was a particular example of this. Um, the Ga- It was Gaussian, so it meant that it suppressed the tails at the end of the risk distribution. Um, it was a very bizarre system in the sense that it looked at how much could the markets move on 99% of days. Well, that's fine, but it's basically what you're looking at is the risk of days that aren't very risky. And... Since 100 days is only about five months, 100 trading days, it makes no sense to do a value-at-risk system which only looks at the 99 days because every five months you've got something that your risk management system hasn't said anything about. Um, and the, the risk, on a, um, particularly in uh, some products, the risk on that other 1% of days can be a huge multiple of the VAR on the 99% of good days. Um, It's pro-cyclical because the volatility, as they calculate it, looking at last month, is low in calm markets. And so in calm markets, you build up a huge position because your value at risk is said to be low. And then when the volatility goes up suddenly, you get something comes in and the market starts jumping about. Everybody tries to reduce their position at once. It's crazy. And it encourages pathological products such as uh, collateralized, default obliga- uh, sorry, collateralized debt obligations, uh, securitization, and credit default swaps. And, uh, because those, basically what they do is they pack all their risk into the 1% bad days. Collateralized debt obligations have very fat tails. If, for example, you've got a portfolio of 100 subprime mortgages, Uh, they're not going to go at, say, 5%. Either none of them are going to go, or very few, or alternatively the whole bloody portfolio is going to go wrong at not once. And so your risk management system that says the top 50% slice of that CDO is safe is rubbish. It's nonsense. The top 50% slice of that CDO has the safety of the 51st most dangerous mortgages of those 100... subprime mortgages and of course the 51st most dangerous mortgage is still something that's pretty hairy and so you know you've still got a five ten percent chance of the whole bloody portfolio blowing up and um, then on credit default swaps what you've got is very long tails because those behave themselves beautifully as long as the credit doesn't default but if the credit does default your loss is a hundred times the premium and so therefore again you've blown out the var system um, turning for a moment to a classification of risk, you have firstly the classic random uh, nature where there's no underlying driver, the random walk, if you like, and that obeys um, the um, Bayes theorem, the product rule. In other words, if you've got four random things with a 10% chance of happening, four bits of bad news, then the chance of all four happening is one in 10,000, so you can more or less forget about it. Um, However, if it's not random, then the chance of that 10% thing happening may be a lot more than one in 10,000. The second sort of risk is chaotic, which looks like random but has an underlying driver, and it may suddenly change its nature. Um, We've got in the book a picture of a thing called the logistic map, which sort of behaves beautifully for a bit and then suddenly jumps all over the place and then behaves beautifully again and then jumps all over the place. I mean, something that looks random uh, may actually not be, and if it isn't, then your equations are wrong again. You've got things that are unknown but not random, like next year's GDP, next year's sales. That doesn't obey the product rule. Four bits of bad news that are unknown could all happen at once. The probability is much greater than one in 10,000. And those you should manage using a fuzzy logic system, because the thing about fuzzy logic is it says that the probability of, or the belief, I'm sorry, get the terminology right, of four bits of bad news each one in 10 is one is one in 10 it's the minimum not the product and so by fuzzy logic you can manage uh, these unknown factors and then inevitably of course you've got mixed risks uh, which is actually what you've got mostly in real life they're partly random partly chaotic partly unknown and you have some strategic risks which depend on the participants' interaction. If you've got a 30% market share um, and the other company has a 40% market share, then the gaming between you is actually what causes uh, profits and losses. And that's a sort of strategy game, and you go to von Neumann and Morgenstern to work out how to play it. Uh, but it's certainly not in any way random. Um, And, of course, having classified risks so beautifully, you then come down to the underlying problem, which is the mathematicians haven't caught up with it. One of the reasons why everybody used uh, VAR was because everybody understands Gaussian distributions, and economists can just about use a Gaussian equation without getting it wrong. Um, In real life, uh, a lot of the risks don't have Gaussian equations, and the ones that are somewhat more realistic than Gaussian are generally beyond the courses that economists have had. Uh, One such equation which I'm uh, very fond of is the Cauchy distribution. Cauchy was a wonderful French aristocrat um, contemporary of Gauss, who um, was forced to resign his post at the Ecole Polytechnique when the legitimate king, Charles X, was thrown out in 1830 because he wouldn't take the oath of allegiance to Louis-Philippe, who was probably good king of France, because Louis-Philippe wasn't legitimate king of France. And the really sad thing is that the next job he then got was tutoring the legitimate king's eight-year-old grandson, who had a hatred of mathematics for the rest of his life because of being tutored by a senior professor from the Ecole Polytechnique um, The Cauchy distribution is a random Process just like a random walk But what you've got instead Of a drunk walking around by a lamppost is a rifleman ten f- with an infinitely Powerful rifle standing ten Feet away from an infinitely long wall And he's on a turntable And you spin him around assuming he doesn't get dizzy And he fires at random Now of course half the time it'll go over there And won't hit the wall at all but the other half of the time it hits somewhere on the wall. And the uh, pattern of bullet holes turns out to be um, much more dispersed than a normal Gaussian distribution. And so, for example, whereas um, David Viniar's 25 standard deviation days only happen uh, once in the history of a billion universes in Gaussian, under Cauchy they happen once every two and a half months. (laughs) Now, the reality is that they seem to happen about once every 10 years, but I put it to you that 10 years is a lot closer to two and a half months than it is to the lifespan of a billion universes. And so um, if you use the Cauchy distribution, you can basically take something like VAR but using Cauchy, and that will um, model... Um, very long tails, credit default swaps, very nicely. And basically, if you stuff a portfolio of credit default swaps into a Cauchy risk management system, it will say, "Uh uh-oh, these particular bizarre things that your quants have invented are particularly risky, and therefore you have to set a very small limit for them. And that's exactly what you want the system to do. You want it to be able to spot when the quants have found a way of gaming your original risk management system. And that's what I call a litmus test for, in that case, very long tails. And the Cauchy distribution will catch all those very long tails and will enable you to set very small limits for those extremely risky products, which means, in practice, the traders won't bother with them because they can't make their bonuses. Um, (coughs) And then in the other um, uh, new distribution that I propose to use is fuzzy logic, which is where, again, you use a VAR system, but instead of using probability, you use fuzzy logic, which has a, um, the thesis that the belief of two independent events is the minimum of their beliefs, not the product. And... Um, Westerners don't like this theory, this system because it violates Aristotle and Descartes. Aristotle says everything's either a or not a. Descartes said sort of set everything as neat membership of sets, whereas fuzzy logic says that um, a grey item, for example, is 52 percent member of the black set and 48 percent member of the white set. And that's unpleasant to Western brains who are brought up with Aristotle. Um, Fortunately, old Confucius, he knew a thing or two. And so actually, if you look at Confucianism, it's much closer to fuzzy logic. And that's why the Japanese build fuzzy logic vacuum cleaners quite happily. And, um, you know, they work And fuzzy logic cement kilns and so on. I mean, the Japanese are much better fuzzy logic engineers than we are. And so (coughs) what fuzzy logic does is it enables you to catch fat tails, for example, a portfolio of subprime mortgages, because when you've got 100 subprime mortgages, normal probability theory uh, will say that, um, say the probability of 20% of them going is 0.00001. Fuzzy logic will say, no, if each of them have a 10% chance of going bust, then actually the probability of 20% of them going is still 10%. Indeed, the probability of 90% of them going is still 10%. And if, as is more realistic, they have a variation in probability of going wrong between, say, 1% and 50%, then the 20% going bust will be the 21st worst mortgage because you're taking the minimum. And so, um, you know, the the 21st best mortgage, I guess, and the chance of 90% of them going wrong will be the 91st best mortgage. And so that gives you a much better handle on what your risks are from these very highly correlated items. And so I propose a risk paradigm which uses multiple methods to catch these pathologies. Um, It uses a base case that's somewhere between uh, Gaussianism and Cauchy. It then uses a Cauchy distribution as a litmus test for very long tails and a uh, fuzzy logic system as a litmus test for very fat tails. And I would propose that that is actually something that could be put in legislation, that you could mandate the use of litmus tests by the banking system. Because, you see, Dodd-Frank and banking legislation, all that's done (coughs) is say that banks have to put up more capital, Basel III. But actually, you're at a second order of the problem with capital. The problem's not capital, the problem's risk. And really, if you're going to have... Um, uh, a bank regulatory system, which you have to have because the Fed's cuckoo, then um, you have to have a regulatory system that regulates risk, not just capital. And that means that risk management uh, methods have to be uh, – minimum ones, at any rate, have to be set from the center. And so you at least need to um, set um, litmus tests from the center – uh, cauchy and fuzzy logic, and that could be done by act of Congress. It doesn't need, um, you know, it's not something that takes 50 years to implement. It could be done next month. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, uh, thank you Kevin uh, Martin. I thought that was uh, very helpful, and I, I will note as well, um, it, perhaps because it is such a, an extensive book. A number of areas recovered. Uh, there's also quite, uh, I think, an extensive discussion of the government failures, particularly monetary policy that contributed to this crisis as well. And I <coughs> know that both the authors did not have as much time to touch upon that. So perhaps we will in the discussion and in, in Q&A. So I'd like to open it up to uh and answered, and we can start right here. Oh, please wait for the microphone. I, and I will ask as well that please uh, phrase your question and... and
3: uh, my name That's is Stephen Shore. We had in this country a politician, Huey Long, that said every man a king, and we had a real estate policy of every, essentially, every man a homeowner, mm. with mortgage deduction and the government putting pressure on people to so to spread home ownership and having people get home equities and being able to deduct the interest and rising appreciation of home prices as as sellers d- didn't really care whether the, the the what would happen to the buyers uh, six months down the road mm-hmm. so in what to what extent um, does the policy at least in the United States on home ownership a where converting homeowners into enablers of risky behavior contribute to the crisis and wouldn't any rational solution result in a smaller appreciation of home prices with a, in a world where the only people who could buy homes are the ones who could actually afford them?
1: I
2: sure, um, yes, it contributed very substantially to it. Uh, the mortgage interest tax deduction, for example, but particularly the government guarantees of home loans, which other countries such as my own native Britain don't do. And uh, there's no question that that created a bubble in the housing market if you remove those policies, you will reduce the bubble. The thing you really need to do, however, is to do something to the Fed to make sure it doesn't create too much money. (coughs) That's the one topic I didn't um, include in my speech just now. Um, You need to Volckerize the Fed. In other words, you need, by changing its statutes, to make sure that it operates as the Paul Volcker Fed and not as the Ben Bernanke
0: Fed. Uh, Right here in front.
4: I'd like to offer you an opportunity to elaborate even further on that, because uh, uh, we did hear mention of the excessive uh, CEO and executive compensation uh, that has certainly made the news. Uh, it's very, it's been demagogued, but it certainly has drawn people's attentions. Um, and a couple of reasons given for it. You spoke, uh, Mr. Dowd, about um, ch- change of family fortunes uh, into managerial uh, capitalism, but uh, again, the mention of I wonder if a more causal factor might be related to the excess liquidity, which you have mentioned. I'm not saying that you denied it. Um, And leaking it as well to uh, asset inflation. In other words, the reason CEOs are getting getting these outrageous salaries, they're given by boards, which are elected by stockholders pursuing shareholder value. Why do they do such things? Well, because if the performance of the CEO, if the assets are inflated, if the the capitalization of the company is inflated because of... Excess liquidity, monetary policy, then then that is exactly what might be at risk. In other words, it it it's worth a hundred million dollars if a person's decisions might make that kind of a difference in the capitalization of the firm, and. To link, does that also link up – it seems another thing that seems to be going at the same time is the rise in price-earnings ratios. Price-earnings ratios seem to be through the roof. The only way this can make sense since earnings haven't gone through the roof is that prices have gone through the roof, namely asset prices. In other words, you could – if you want to get the policy wheels turning for restraint of the Fed and monetary policy, if there is a sound empirical link, which I ask you, is it or is it not – between things that outrage the people such as excess executive compensation and those who invest a little bit and see how price earnings ratios have gone through the roof. uh, Maybe that would be a a light bulb moment for people for whom otherwise monetary policy just makes their eyes glaze over. They don't even know what the Fed is. Okay, thank
2: you. All right, me again. Um, Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I also think that quite a bit's going to happen over the next year. I did a piece last week for Breaking Views, or a week before last when the election happened, saying that Fed harassment was going to be a favorite sport of the um, new Republican Congress. And I think that that's very clearly about to happen. Now, of course, it's not much good harassing the Fed in the short term. Maybe you eventually make Bernanke burst down in tears and resign. But you actually need a structure which stops uh, future Bernanke's from doing what they've done and so I've suggested you want to take away the unemployment uh, mandate in the um, uh, Humphrey-Hawkins Act. Uh, you want to, I think you should have the Fed controlled by the states and not by the center. That's the way the 1958 Bundesbank was, um, was set up. And uh, the advantage of that is, of course, it then becomes very difficult for politicians to meddle because the states control it, all 50 of them, uh, not the central bank, uh, not, the, not the central congress. And you could possibly have then a, mo- a tighter uh, structure of the actual Fed in the way you did with the Bundesbank. In other words, whereas the, s- the structure was set out all over the country, but the control was from Congress reverse that in the way the Bundesbank did. That was the best inflation-controlling organization I've ever seen. And indeed, we've had Dr. Issing of the Bundesbank at uh, monetary conferences here. And I have to say he's rather a hero of mine because he's really good. And I think you'd get American Issings if you did that. Uh, yeah, uh, yes, vulgarising the Fed, a little bit, yes.
1: The other thing, can I just add to that, the policy, because I run out of time and <laughs> didn't manage my time very well. But I think if we look at solutions um, and, and look at political reform solutions, I think we need to distinguish clearly, are we looking at a first best, which is what I, of course, we all want the first best. The first best would be commodity standard, no Fed, low taxes, low government, no financial regulation, etc., extended liability pretty much back to the early 19th century. If you say, well, that's politically unrealistic and we have to work with the Fed, then what do we do? And hence the uh, – but these are second best or tenth best or thousandth best solutions, inc- and including other things that we might not particularly like, like a Tobin tax, nonetheless, would be a good solution to the uh, certain problems of, of excessive trading and so forth. that have no place in a perfect system but might be very useful in a second-best system where we have to make dirty compromises. So I think we should distinguish carefully between the first and second-best solutions.
0: A young lady here.
5: Um, Shihoko Gerto, freelance journalist. Um, as a major proponent of the gold standard, I'm sure, Martin, you were delighted by the fact that the World Bank president um, is also um, advocating a return to the gold standard, or are you? Um, and secondly, uh, the fact that gold price, uh, the gold price is at an all-time high and is likely to climb further, does that have any impact on whatever gold stand policy that you are advocating? Uh,
2: Yes, it does. Um, My view is that um, uh, Mr. Zelik is really only advocating Bretton Woods, which wasn't a real gold standard because it was all controlled by governments. I did a piece last week, again, for the lovely Breaking Views, um, and indeed was lucky enough to appear on TV to propound this Theory That in actual fact, the private sector, if they go on quantitative easing here in China, in Europe, wherever else, the private sector is going to take matters into its own hands. Chinese and German exporters are going to start invoicing in gold. You can already make payments in gold internationally. Banks, the Raffaisen Central Bank, a splendid Austrian organisation, already allows you to have a gold bank account. The private sector will start expanding in this area if they don't change monetary policy and will take it away from governments. You'll find gold alongside the other currencies, but inevitably, since the parities won't be fixed, Gresham's law won't operate, and so gold will uh, gradually drive out the others if they don't bring monetary policy under control.
6: I'm uh, Kurt Schuller from the Office of International Affairs in the U.S. Treasury Department. Uh, you, you propose uh, imposing a, a, a tax on U.S. banks beyond a, a certain size, say 2.5% of GDP. So I'd like to know um, if, if that same limit should be the same or, or higher in smaller you know, s- uh, smaller economies? You know, for, you know, for instance, uh, Britain, where I believe that the, – or Switzerland, uh, where the banks are – the big banks are, are well, larger, considerably larger in proportion to the size of uh, the overall economy than they are in the United States.
1: Well, I mean, all I can say to that, Kurt, I mean, it's a good, fair question, but this classic case of second best or tenth best policy making. Um, Our concern there was simply that the banks, if they're too big to fail, they're too big to exist. And in any case, they're on state life support anyway, so the state may as well use its power for once to do some good. Now, where you draw the line and so forth doesn't really matter, but it's the general direction that one wishes to take in a second-best world.
2: The nice thing about 2.5% of GDP is that it captures everybody who you think of as Wall Street but doesn't capture the Pittsburgh National Corporation or U.S. Bank Corp., which are regional banks. They're just below that level.
0: Question in the back here.
5: Atul Singh
1: of the Fair Observer, which is a new multimedia online journal that will be launched next year. Uh, my question is uh, I agree with your prognosis, but what are the incentives in the current political structure, global political structure, to implement your ideas? Because it seems uh, the US is definitely going in for quantitative easing and China has a fixed exchange rate, and that'll Import U.S. domestic monetary policy, mm-hmm. and um, and um, <coughs> Guido Mantega, the Brazilian finance minister, has already talked about currency wars. So my question is: Yes, uh, there are solutions needed, but where? How do they arise in the current structure? What are the incentives for reform?
2: Well, there are two incentives that I see at the moment, and that's almost a this week thing. One is the new Republican Congress, where there's a percentage of them that are in favor of hard money, and they will harass Bernanke. There's very little that the Congress can actually do with a Democrat president and a Democrat Senate, but harassing Bernanke is both enjoyable and feasible, (laughs) and therefore I believe that they will do it a lot and that they will affect thinking about monetary policy by doing so internationally, I think if the major countries don't get their act together, then you will see this private sector gold standard. And that puts the biggest possible incentive on governments because it takes away their seniorage, the profit they make by issuing all this paper money. And governments that are uh, removed from seniorage will suddenly discover a big hole in their budgets.
1: Can I add another incentive? And that's the Tea Party movement. I mean, the great thing about American democracy is that in the end, you know there are powers coming from the people that bring the politicians in line, and I think we're beginning to see that. Um, and in other countries too. I mean, America is not—forgive uh, the, uh, the phrase—the only basket case around. I think Britain is in worse shape, and by some stroke of luck, we managed to have got a semi-enlightened government in Britain, which is doing at least going in the right direction. Uh, but I do think you need a change of leadership here. But. Power, you know, pressure from below will certainly go a long way, and probably will win out in the end. Uh,
4: yeah. In the...
5: yeah, my name is Li Yang. I think when we talk about all this um, capitalism or market structure, we are usually based on uh, fairness uh, on those uh, productivity sense, but actually, in this real world, is uh, hardly anything like it. And if you are talking about banking system, I think way back to, uh, let's say, 30, 30 or 40 years ago, the consumer deposit at least can get some interest uh, as earnings, but now not only you cannot have that as earnings, all the penalties is going to rip up all the consumers. And then if you are talking about, now you are talking about the tea parties, the tea party may be just like, like Republican or Democrat, their mission are good, but they are usually abused, misused. So we our election process is basically flawed. So I just wonder if we are going to measure the productivities, if we are talking about IBM or World Bank or Central Bank or Fed, if they are not used to the concept of basic fairness and they just spare out the banking or big institutions or manufacturers, And uh, consumers are lost uh, tremendously, or taxpayers are lost, and so, if we are measuring the G- GDP or productivity based on this sense, it's actually upside down. So, I think we have to have a basic structures or basically revolution. But the problem now is revolutionists or activists will be sent to jail, sent to probably Continental Bay. So, we must have a real structures, real leaders, and really grassroots, because grassroots now is basically bought by those money who get money from the state or local or bear out. So what do you think? How do you address all these issues?
1: Well, to address the last question, I think this country had a very good Tea Party, the very first one, which is a very healthy revolution. No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs>
2: It was the lowest tax regime the world's ever seen and one of its better governments.
1: There was no representation. (laughs) So what? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We've got
0: time for one more question here.
6: Banker, but I did spend 20 years on the board of Chase Bank, and I'm very disturbed with your presentation. I guarantee I'll read your book if you're saying that under the present situation that what you're proposing is what should be done i can understand that but if you're indicating that our founding fathers or people that would set up a system would set up a system then which would help us now i i just don't understand it uh i tell my clients you know when uh george washington defeated the british uh, in Virginia it took the British at least a month and a half before they realized they'd been defeated now you know in five minutes I remember once having a case in the Supreme Court of the United States where I represented the Philadelphia gas works and demonstrated that the maximum amount the southern Louisiana could sell for natural gas was 21.5 cents per MCF I'm pretty sure it's $10 or more now and I just don't understand how you bankers, so I hope us lawyers and others, realize there are many more people in the world now. There are bright people all over the world. And there have to be variations that I frankly know of no system where the bankers can sit down and work out something which will still be applicable 50 years from now.
2: I think the... (coughs) Um, A lot of the systems we looked at um, went on for a very long time. I mean, I think the sort of temporariness of of today's systems is is partly a result of uh, cheap money and high leverage. Uh, That's why the whole system collapses every 10 years. So that if you can um, devise some relatively simple changes that have a chance of being made, can get some popular support and can make the system substantially better, substantially more stable. Then, you know, the big problem in 10 years' time, when you've done those, there'll still be some big problems, but there'll be something else. But only by designing improvements that can be actually made in a practical basis... Um, Can you move a bad system towards a better one? Because all the time there are various other forces trying to make things worse. There's no question in my mind that the global banking system is not as effective now as it was in um, 1914 or indeed in 1975. But one can push it back in that direction.
0: Uh, Well, I want to thank the Arthurs, and I want to thank everybody. I know our Arthurs are going to stick around for a little bit, and we've still got books for sale. And I want to invite everybody up to the Winter Garden for lunch. And thank you for your...
1: uh,